John wrote, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Friends, believe the good news. In Jesus Christ, we are forgiven. This is my lovely wife, Anne. We've been covenant partners here for two or three years. Uh, decades. <laughs> this morning, we celebrate the surpassing power of God revealed when the gospel is applied to our problems and community pain. The second problem Paul addresses in Corinth is sexual deviance that not only com compromises God's design, but had become worse than the city. From love, Paul directly addresses the problem. We will see and celebrate how the gospel redirects our community practices through cultivating accountable relationships. Truth applied in love to see sin problems redeemed for God's glory. So please join us as we read 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. All flesh is grass, and its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Thank you, Buns. What a joy it is to worship with you all this morning. If you uh, have your Bibles, please keep them open. Uh, I know what some of you are thinking. Finally, we're getting into some, you know, telenovela episodes here, right? If you're visiting with us and you hear those verses, you say, wow, they go right at it, don't they? Yeah, we do, um, because it's God's Word. And, and the truth is, as we uh, study 1 Corinthians, we are seeing uh, what Tim Keller describes as the gospel, not just being the ABCs of life, but really the A to Z of all of life. And that through the finished work of Christ, God takes our struggles and, and makes them strength. He, he takes our brokenness and he makes things beautiful. And so looking at a, a few difficult passages like this, uh, we stopped at verse 2. Uh, we're going to walk through the whole chapter. Uh, it really should be uh, something that makes you uncomfortable because God's grace is that extravagant. Um, if you have a bulletin uh, on the back, you'll see a place for notes, um, and we're going to work our way through this passage, um, and as we do, I just want to remind you uh, that you're hearing from a guy uh, that's more broken than you are. This isn't a place where uh, we need to be perfect or need to pretend to be perfect, uh, but we're studying Corinthians uh, from the voice of a Corinthian. Um, we're going to talk today about the power of sharing truth and love and the opportunity that we have to, to wake up to the gospel, with the gospel. I became a Christian in 1992, the year of my Lord, our Lord, right? Uh, after I came to Christ, I woke up from a nap. My counselor had come to my house and they woke me up and they said, Mitchell, there's some people in the other room that want to talk to you. I was really disoriented. I got up. I went into the other room. There were people from my church, people from my family, and my friends. 
They were there for an intervention. You see, even though I had come to know the saving grace of Christ, I still struggled with alcohol, substance abuse. I had some uh, mental health problems. And they uh, told me truth in love. And they walked me from my house to the car and drove me to a treatment facility. And if it wasn't for accountable relationships, people loving me in truth and sharing truth and love, I wouldn't be standing before you today. I'm a Corinthian, standing before you, studying Corinthians, asking that by God's grace, we might discover that we're all Corinthians together. Before we study the word of the Lord, let's go to the Lord of the word in prayer, will you? Let's pray. Father, we love you and we thank you. I pray that you would wake us up with the power of the gospel. Lord, thank you for the fruitfulness that can come in hearing the truth and love and sharing the truth and love. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would uh, ambush us and revive us. Lord, we love you and we pray for your mercy as we study. In Jesus' name, amen. So here's the uh, reality. The situation in Corinth was really bad. The city was extremely corrupt. And as we see from this passage, that the, the church, the uh, people that are called to be holy, called to be unique, called to be distinct, uh, bought by God's grace, should be living for God's glory by walking faithfully behind him. But they had actually become more corrupt than the whole world, uh, the, more corrupt than the pagans, more corrupt than the city of Corinth. And their arrogance had led them to not even be repentant of their sin. And we see this uh, scenario where Paul, as the church planter, actually shares truth in love and and follows divine design for uh, what are accountable relationships um, and what is uh, understood to be church discipline. Um, We're going to see how if we don't really understand the gospel of Jesus Christ, Uh, then we live self-righteously and we live judging other people uh, and uh, thinking we're better than other people for their sin uh, because we're not as sinful as they are. Or or we live uh, rejecting authority. A lot of people don't know the love of Christ. Uh, They don't know the gospel. And so they just reject authority completely. Uh, Or uh, we live in a way that isn't just self-righteously. It it isn't just rejecting uh, um, authority completely. But it's punitively. Uh, we have this issue that if we see other people that are, that are sinners, that we feel like it's our job to punish them, our job to judge them, our job to get them out uh, or, or to expose them. All of these are toxic. They're toxic to us personally. They're toxic to communities generally. And only understanding the gospel, that, that our relationship, a sinner relating to other sinners, uh, it's not punitive. We don't punish people. It's not moralistic. We don't think we're better than other people because other people are more sinful than we are. So we think it's not something that we we leverage our self-righteousness from. Truly, we believe and we understand that Jesus Christ died to pay for all of our sins. He, in his death, completely satisfied the penalty of sin. So that frees us to love one another in a way that is restorative. Sharing truth in love, in love in truth. So when we believe that Christ died for our sins and then he rose again, then there is a faith that fertilizes a flourishing and a fruitfulness 
that your heart longs for and that you long to see in communities. The gospel truly is a solution, but let's look, let's walk through our guide, restorative discipline. Uh, it's gospel-centered community. It's accountable discipleship. It's, a, it's a, a celebration of the reality that in Christ, your sin and my sin, it's never the end of the story. Now, we read a couple of tough verses, and it actually gets a little bit tougher as we go through. We'll see this. But, but the man that, that Paul says needs to be ex- expelled, that needs to be uh, under discipline and removed from the church. Actually, we know it's restorative because when we get to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 5 to 8, uh, Paul welcomes this man back in the midst. He welcomes him home to the Corinthian church family with the Corinthians, encouraging them uh, to extend forgiveness and joining him and forgiving him. Why? Uh, Because when he was cast out of church, he was able to be self-aware and to repent and to be restored. Uh, Restorative church discipline, restorative relationships formally look like this. Uh, Formal uh, church discipline, formal uh, uh, restoration. Uh, Very popularly uh, in the past year, you've heard of Matt Chandler in the Village Church at Flower Mound. Uh, He had elders come to him. He was actually removed. One of an amazing pastor because he had an inappropriate DM relationship. That's a direct message relationship. Uh, For those of you all who don't know what a DM is on Instagram, some of y'all are like, this is like a foreign language. Is he speaking in tongues? No, it's just social media. Um, And he... uh, He was actually removed from the pulpit for uh, a while. Why? So that he could be repentant and be restored. And and Matt was an amazing example of of a humble man that responded to the authority of the church in a beneficial way, and it strengthened his marriage. Um, There's obviously lots of cases in the church where formal church discipline has happened on on a lower level, but it's an opportunity for the authority of the church to prayerfully discern uh, when someone is being unrepentant, rebellious uh, at the, uh, the her- harm of themselves and the harm of the community and to give them space outside the church uh, or away from the sacraments or other levels so that they can uh, have room to repent and then to be restored. Uh, we're not going to spend all our time on talking about that. I want to talk about informal church discipline. Informal discipline, informal uh, application of this looks like accountable relationships. Um, if you have a, a relationship, I was with a man uh, earlier this week who was telling me that, that his level of holiness has been increased. Uh, he is able to be more pure in his mind and his thoughts uh, and in his habits. Why? Because he's joined an accountability group and, and these guys are sharpening him. This is informal church discipline. It's informal uh, in the sense that it's personal and it's accountable. And when we understand the gospel, it frees us to love one another in truth and to share the truth in the context of love. Uh, and we'll unpack what that looks like more. Uh, just to illustrate your heart and how it hungers for it, you might say, man, I, I can't stand a Accountability. All right. Okay. I get that. I understand it. But if you've ever wanted to grow uh, in your vocation and you've had a mentor, if you've ever wanted to get better at sports and you've had a good coach, if you've ever wanted to learn uh, academically and you, you've had a good teacher, um, anywhere in your life where, where you've had any sort of direction that's accountable, where you want to grow measurably, that illustrates a heart that is actually hungry uh, to grow, to be accountable. 
And this is the informal door that we're going to go in. It's, it's um, acknowledging, though, where we're pretty uncomfortable, what John says in 1 John uh, chapter 1, verses 5 to 9. Uh, he encourages us to walk in the light. And, and he, he says there that uh, if you are in darkness, you can't have fellowship with God or with one another. And if you're in darkness, it means you have sin. And then, and then he says this. He says, if, if you don't claim to have sin then you deceive yourselves and you make God a liar. But if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to purify us and to, to, to restore us, to forgive us, to remove the unrighteousness in our lives. Uh, it's this invitation to live in the light, but in relationship with one another. It's what Proverbs 27 invites us to, uh, iron sharpening iron. It, it's how Jesus prescribed us to live in Matthew 18, that if your brother has anything against you, then go to him personally, address it, confront it. And then he gives us prescription to formal church discipline. If they don't listen, take somebody with you, an intervention, so to speak. And, and if he still doesn't listen, then, then take the church. Take the authority of the church. So this is uh, at the core, though, the, the informal uh, application of this truly celebrates accountable discipleship. It's restorative for the church. It's restorative for relationships by providing a path for sinners to repent. It's a tool for restoration. All right. A lack of accountability in the church and in your life, it actually affects the whole community. I learned this the hard way, and I want to give you an illustration today that I think everybody can identify with. How many of us have new water meters from Saul's? All of us have it if you have a home, right? You live in San Antonio. Uh, they put new water meters, and they are thoroughly accountable. And I know this because my bill went up, and I worked with Saul's trying to understand uh, how in the world my bill could be this much more after several months. It turns out that I had a leak that I wasn't aware of, and the new meter picked it up. And not only that, like I am super aware of how much water. I'm like standing outside of my 15-year-old's bathroom, and I was like, hey, stop showering. I mean, I'm glad you're showering, but it's been three minutes. Get out of there. You know, I, I, the accountability has raised the standard. Uh, plus, I want to save money on my water bill. Um, but the truth is that if our, if our homes individually don't address the leaks that we're unaware of, it's going to affect us as a city. Our water level is lower than it has been in decades and decades and decades. And so we have to. Like the slow leak in our home actually affects everybody in the city. And this is the same way with accountability in the church. That if we have a slow leak of our lives morally, a slow leak of our lives, we're compromising. That's going to get more compromised. And it will actually affect the whole community. Do you see the paradigm? Uh, it, it is this invitation to share the truth in love. And I want to give you a, a tool that I use uh, with a lot of people. You've probably seen it before if you have. Get over it. Um, but the gospel just frees us to address slow drips in our relationship with Christ to deepen the well of love and truth. So you, have, you see this uh, cross on your diagram. There at the top, we're going to put truth at the bottom, lies. Uh, on the right side, we're going to put love. And on the left side, we're going to put venom. Okay, it's just think about it in, in, a, in a quadrant. If you have love, but no truth, 
then you actually are living in fear. You're afraid to tell somebody their zipper's down. I just loved you so much, but I looked like an idiot. Well, I just, I just loved you too much. You're afraid. You're afraid to tell a friend they've got a booger in their nose or broccoli in their teeth, right? A bear in the cave. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to get so vulgar. I was afraid to tell you I didn't want to embarrass you, okay? That's love with no truth. But if you have truth with no love, you have venom. You know what happens there? Think about a a parent that is constantly correcting, constantly saying what truth they need to hear. What happens? That family fractures. And that's the same in a community. It's the same same in a society that if there's only truth and no love, then there's fracturing, okay? So we have fear and then fracturing. What if you have venom and lies? What if there's no love and no truth? You know what you have? Nothing. Nothing grows. It's feral. But truth and love, and I use this tool all the time. I use it in marriages. I use it in relationships, friendships that are trying to reconcile. I've used it uh, in families. I've used it with parenting. I've used it in workplace relationships. Truth and love, and love and truth is how we have fruitfulness. And this goes directly to Ephesians 4, 15 to 24, but we're not going to have time to go into that. We need to get to our case study in Corinth. And you might say, well, Paul's going a little bit over the top here. I mean, couldn't he address this person one-on-one? Did he have to put it in a public letter that was read publicly in front of everybody? Yeah, he did. You know why? Because restorative discipline is good for everyone. The church, discipline is actually a a means of grace. It's it's where uh, unrepentant sinners can receive love and, and experience the truth and the opportunity to repent. Uh, It's an opportunity you see in verse 5, if your Bibles are open, we're going to start working through the text, the uh, the, the end of that phrase, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. It's not just for sanctification, it's also for salvation reasons. Second, restorative discipline stops sin from normalizing in a community. If the leaders or you're in a relationship, you have a family, you got friendships, if you're not speaking truth, then sin will normalize. Finally, restorative discipline, it benefits the world. You know why? Because the world needs to see a holy people, a people that are having fruitful humanity. They long to see it in the place where God has established this to be the case. The garden is the church. So Paul is calling out this man publicly, and and here's the provocation. Look at verses one and two. It's reported to Paul, and I don't know if this was Chloe's people like last week, but there is actually sexual immorality among you of kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans. Now, can we stop and appreciate something that this church and our culture needs to hear? There are sexual activities, sexual things that you do personally and in relationship that are outside the bounds of God's design. There is a standard for human sexuality. And this standard is beneficial and beautiful. We're going to talk more about it next week. I've warned you when we get to chapter 6. Okay? I've just This is another preview. Um, but there's a standard. And... This, if you read about this historically, uh, there's actually a Roman marriage law that this man is uh, 
sleeping with his dad's wife, probably not his mom, but, but there's something that, that would ensure that he could have uh, a level of financial benefit from this. And so it's, it, it, there's a lot of commentators, not a lot, several, that actually try to justify this and minimize it. And it's, it's amazing how easily we try to justify our sin, our deviance from God's design, how we, uh, how we seek to justify through economic reasons or uh, through our own flesh sinful struggles. We justify ways that we've been hurt. And so we practice in things or, or, or some sort of escape. Um, we, we always justify our sin. But the reality of restorative discipline is an opportunity for us to celebrate being justified in Christ, of that we are completely forgiven and given a righteous record through the work of Christ so that we can acknowledge and agree with God that we have sinned and to be restored and to walk in a newness of life. This is the, the provocation. And the truth is that, as we'll see next week, the church is a dwelling place of God's Spirit. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19 to 20. There's just no place for this. So, so the posture that he, that he addresses it, if you look down with me, um, he says in verse 2, are, You are arrogant. Ought you not rather mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. The posture is one of humility. It's one of grieving. Now, we, we don't see sin like Romans 1, uh, where the pagans and the Gentiles uh, celebrate and boast in sin. When we know the love of our Father through Christ, then we see sin and we grieve. We mourn. We're broken. This posture of humility, this posture of realizing things are not the way they're supposed to be. It's, it's like uh, when Christ looked out on the crowds and he, it says that he had compassion for they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. It's this deep compassion for people to want to live a more full humanity. So the posture when you approach something like this has to be humble and has to be mourning. The principle is this, verse 6 and 7, uh, he's really clear. Uh, your boasting is not good. Just eliminate the pride, eliminate the boasting. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. And this is a lot of Passover imagery that's very powerful. We don't have time to unpack. But he says, uh, for Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity, of love and truth. The principle is this. Hey, you are a people. You are redeemed. You are holy in Christ. Therefore, remove the leaven. Remove the sin. There is a little bit of yeast that makes the whole loaf rise. And because you are God's people and you've been bought with a price, it's not so that you can earn status or earn love, but because you have a status in Christ, and because you are loved, we're honest with the sin and we remove it so that we can repent and begin again. The patterns that he goes into, he goes into some very specific sins that, that really are uh, leveling the field. 
so that we can see that none of us are without need of accountability and relationships. We're, we're not going to go through the list of unrepentant sins, but I want you to understand the paradigm. The paradigm is simple, that in line with uh, Old Testament uh, authority, specifically language from, from Deuteronomy, in line with what Jesus taught, that if your right hand causes you to sin, what do you do? Cut it off. If your right eye causes you to sin, what do you do? You poke it out. He's speaking figuratively there, all right? But he, he's, he's driving home a really clear point. This, the, the, the paradigm is that when we see sin, we address it, beginning right here and beginning in our closest relationships. And we should actually seek accountability where people will tell us the truth in love and to show love by telling the truth. Why? Our sin is never the end of the story when we're in Christ. We don't need to hide in shame. We need to come and get out in the light. We don't need to pretend like we have everything together. God fully sees you. He fully loves you. He knows the depth of your sin, more than you're willing to be honest with yourself. And he still loves you. And so the purpose, the purpose of repentance, the purpose of restoration, these are the goals so that you can be brought back in line with, with God's design. That the brother may see his sin and repent and be saved, verse 5, but leading you to the question of who do you need to talk to? Who do you need to love the way my friends and my family loved me? The, the church may, may really be the holy people that we are set apart to be, called to be. Uh, what is your contribution to that? How is God calling you to walk with someone or to let someone walk with you in the light? What is it that we get to appreciate about having a place that's safe in this world where it looks like evil and wickedness and sin are everywhere, where we can say, you know what? We're not going to normalize sin here. We're going to celebrate God and his design. But let's do that together. That's, that's the invitation. And then when we do that, we will optimize our mission to be salt in this world and to be light. And this is possible you say, well, it seems a little extreme that Paul says, get this guy out, of, out, you know, like send him out. That seems extreme. It's not. You know why? Because we have a Savior who, though he was without sin, when he became sin, he was cut off. He was cast out. He was on the cross. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was cut off so that we can come to our senses and be brought near, that we could experience the grace of God through the work on the Christ. Christ was actually handed over to Satan so that we could be ripped from the domain of darkness and transferred in the kingdom of God's beloved son to be secure in God's steadfast love. And when we understand the truth of the gospel, 
of the deep love of God, then it will enhance, it will lift our eyes off of ourselves, off even our sin struggle, and welcome relationships where we can celebrate an authentic love with one another that's centered on truth and a truth that never stands alone without love. That is why this table is important. This table belongs to Jesus Christ and his people. This isn't First Presbyterian Church table. This table is for people who are in Christ. If you're not a believer in here today, we welcome an opportunity to pray for you. If you are a believer, Jesus says, come and feast on my grace. That in your poverty, you might feast upon the richness of his mercy. That in your immortality, that you might, your mortality, you might feast on his immortality. That in your sin, you might feast on his righteousness. It was the night that Jesus was betrayed, that he took bread. And after giving thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup. He said, this is the new covenant of my blood poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. And as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes and he will come again, church. And we, until he does, can feast upon his spiritual presence right here. He's locally present at the right hand of the Father, but by the power of his spirit, he says, come and feast on my grace. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the reality and the power of your finished work. And we thank you that we can come feast on your grace at this table. And we pray, Lord, we intercede on behalf of the people in this room that need to know that they are loved no matter what they've done and their sin is not the end of the story. For people, Lord, that need to move out of darkness and come into light and to experience the, the fruitfulness that comes in living in love and truth, Lord, for our church to be a, a safe place in this city, a light of hope because we take your work more serious than our own and we don't normalize sin. Lord, we pray for our city that your church generally would rise up and celebrate accountable relationships. And we ask, Lord God, that you would use our city, our church in the city to, to be salt, uh, that Christians would be salt in their workplaces, in their homes, in their schools, and on their teams. And Father, I pray that you would bring your kingdom to come and your will to be done in our city through your people who celebrate your love and truth. And right now we ask that you to feast us Feast our souls on your grace, that you would set this bread and cup apart from its common and ordinary purposes. And Lord, you would nourish us. Nourish us, we pray. In Jesus' name, all God's people prayed the way Jesus taught us to pray, saying together, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.